you really want to focus on the knots that you're using, but most importantly, it's the distance between your dry flies. That really becomes very, very important because you need to have opportunities for the trout to see the fly, but also you need to make sure that when they come up, your flies are not separated by 24 inches. In fact, a lot of times these flies are only separated six to 12 inches because the closer, yeah, the closer the trout is to the surface, the narrower the viewing lane. That was Landon Mayer sharing a sweet little tip for your next hatch. Dry flies, guide flies, and feather wings today on the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how you doing today? Thanks for stopping by the show. Please, if you get a chance, click that subscribe button or follow button on your podcast app you're using right now to make sure you get uh, updated when that next episode drops. Before we get started, let's hear from our sponsors. The Fly Fishing Film Tour is back again this year. Don't miss this uh, year's 2022 F3T as it returns to theaters near you. You can check out uh, some of these theaters by heading over to flyfilmtour.com and find a showing near you for some super uh, outstanding footage, probably the best stuff that's out there on in the fly fishing game. So if you want to see some great inspirational films, go to uh, flyfilmtour.com or uh, you can go also wetflyswing.com slash F3T to find a show near you. Landon Mayer is back on the podcast, this time to share some of his go-to guide flies and how to fish and tie them. Landon describes the difference between his mini leech and the woolly bugger, why he likes to sink some of his dry flies, and the fly that was actually not accepted by Umpqua, Umpqua Feather Merchants. So we, we, uh, we got a great story today. This is definitely a nice uh, ride Landon's going to take us on. So without further ado, let's get into this. Landon Mayer, here we go. How's it going, Landon? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me, Dave. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for thanks for doing this. We uh, we had you on way back in episode forty eight, which I think might have been season two. I, I'm not even sure exactly, but it was early on, and and we touched base a little bit with uh, you know we had some of this uh, craziness going with uh, this app. I can't remember what it was called. It was the um, it was the rage back like last year. This new uh, this new app. It was like a live podcasting app. And, oh yeah, uh, and and yep. we were we were trying to get it going, and it just it kind of it didn't turn out to be a great thing. It turns out podcasting like we're doing here, where we we edit and is way better than doing live. So, anyways, are you good for a, another podcast here? Let's do it. Let's dive right in. All right, cool. <laughs> well, give us. Let's just go back to that. Let's go back to an update. So it was way back in um, you know November 2018, last time we had you on the podcast, and uh, right. give us an update. Other than other than COVID, which obviously has been around for everybody, uh, what else have you been up to since then? Just pretty much going full speed ahead. Uh, ended up doing quite a few trips. Obviously, COVID, people wanted to get out in the outdoors and the clean air and space. And guiding's been wonderful. Still doing that full time. The last time we spoke, the the book project, The Hunt for Giant Trout, was being released. And boy, time surely does fly. And during COVID, I decided, you know what, I'm going to take on another book project, one of my other passions within the passion of this sport, which is fly tying. And that led me to the book Guide Flies. And during 2020, I ended up actually spending probably a good six months taking the images for the book, the step-by-step photos, working on text. Enjoying a, a ton of time with the family, which was really great. I know 
so many challenges and so many things happened that were negative during COVID. But during during COVID, having time with the family was a positive thing and being able to focus on the, the next book project and just enjoy others people company on the water. It was a lot of fun. Right on, right on. Yeah, and, and the book is... The book is definitely big and beautiful and great uh, big photos, and you kind of have a, a step-by-step to, I think, I, I'm not sure how many flies are in there, but there's a bunch of flies. Well, let's start. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about the book as well. I'm curious, sure. uh, you know, on, well, let's just start. Let's start with the book. So the flies that are in there, I'm, uh, you know, as far as where they could be used, if somebody picks up this book, are these kind of standard flies that you might use all around the country, or are they more focused in a specific area? No, that's a great question. There's definitely flies that you can use around the country, around the globe, any fishery, whether it's rivers or still waters alike. The selection of flies in the book, there's 20 total, and 12 of the flies I have available with Umqua Feather Merchants. And then the other eight flies are from some amazing anglers who were kind enough to contribute to the book, their information, the step ties, their recipes, and Phil Terralia, Angus Drummond, Arlo Townsend, Kevin Davidson, Ken Walrath. Michael Burgess, just to name a few, Walt Mueller Jr., just a really a great collection of flies. And what's unique about the other eight flies, a lot of these are not commercial ties. So you really can't see the bugs in bends or see them on the markets. But yeah, from dry flies to nymphs to streamers, we've got a really cool selection. So I was happy to see it all come together. Gotcha. So you got it. So you got dry, you got it all in there dry flies, nymphs, streamers, and uh, no wet flies, though. No, we have some wet flies too, in the sense that, you know, especially in the leech patterns, you can, oh, yeah. you can do a lot of swinging, you know, with uh, whether it's micro spay or full on swinging, like we were doing this last fall. It's nice because you have a variety of weighted and unweighted. And really, the, the leech series, the family of leeches I have with Uncle Feather Merchants, there's a lot of great information and it tells the history of where the flies come from, how the design came together. And it's funny because it takes me back to some of my early days when. I learned how to tie when I was 13 years old at the Angler's Covey, and one of the very first flies that I learned to tie was the muddler minnow, which mm-hmm. was really neat because you have a chance to spin deer hair and yeah. see how flies can be affected with streamers and also swinging. So it's kind of the same relationship with the uh, with the leeches as well. Gotcha. And, and what makes these, because part of the title is, I think it's like easy to tie flies. Uh, what makes these flies kind of easy? Are, is that kind of, a, you know, describe that a little bit. Are these simpler than, say, well, the muddler minnow, right? It's not an easy fly to tie, right? You got wings. <laughs> and talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, learning how to fly or tie flies with, you know, the muddler minnow, the hare's ear, tying posts on dry flies with the parachute atoms. It was nice being able to learn the techniques and time difficult, you know, a lot of steps involved flies such as those when I was young. And it led me to believe that you have to have detail in each one of your flies, but as a full-time guide, it needs to be a production process. So I typically tie a dozen flies for each day guiding the following day. And if I do 200 days a year, that's over 2000 flies that I'm preparing and I really need to crank out numbers. And that's what led to the recipes and the thought and ideas for the book. And that is Guides pay attention to details of flies, but more importantly, it's also the production side. So mm-hmm. these flies in the book can have, you know, three to five materials, three to five steps, and you can manipulate it with colors, beads, and it really just gives the tire and the angler a chance to crank out multiple numbers, learn how to tie or become more effective as a tire with proportions and thread control and all of those great things, but also have more bugs ultimately in your box, <laughs> which is huge. Yeah. That's the challenge guiding. <laughs> say, that is a struggle. 
That is the struggle. Yeah, you don't want to sit there and tie a fly that takes you like 45 minutes to tie and then then your client loses it the next day, right? That's a struggle. Right. Yeah, those are personal ties. And don't get me wrong, you know, like Blaine Chocolate's a good friend and Game Changers, flies that take a long time in the process to build, they're wonderful, but they're, you know, a lot of times those are flies in your box. So those are flies that you hope somebody else can learn to tie. And these are on the same note where they're productive, they've proven themselves on the water but yeah the easy simplistic yeah. ties paying attention to details really cool yeah <laughs> i love it yeah you're hitting it that's my wheelhouse i'm more on the, the quick <laughs> give me some quick and easy fly so right. let's take the, the mini leech is one that i think that's one of your patterns right that that is yeah. been pretty popular it's a big name you hear a lot about out there Let, let's start with that one and, and we're not going to dig sure. into all the flies in the book but just to highlight a couple the mini leech talk about that fly why it's so um unique and then let's talk about how to tie it and, and well let's talk about the details on tying and then talk sure. a little about fishing it absolutely yeah no it's it's a cool fly I'm, I'm thankful every day first of all that the idea for flies and designs come come to mind and the big question i've received since the books come out is how how did you come up with these designs and First and foremost, all the flies that I've designed, they were for the purpose of being more productive as a guide. It's not the thought of designing to where the fly looks good and hopefully it catches fish. You want both of those features, but it really was to try to have a tool that would allow me to find more success on those super challenging days. And, you know, full-time guide is the hardest commission-based job on the planet. You're at the whim of mother nature, flows, you know, pressure, all these things that we deal with. And that's how the mini leech was born. And the story in the book is pretty cool. So my mentor in fly fishing and fly design is John Barr. He's a great friend. We know John from multiple, just a a variety of awesome patterns, most importantly, the Copper John. And we were up on the North Platte with the Cowboy Drifters and Jason Hamrick of the Hamrick Brothers. And we were fishing a slump buster. And halfway through the day, a natural slump buster tied with rabbit on the bend of the hook when it's attached with wire so many fish attacked the fly that it broke Hmm. so we didn't realize it at first but as we continued to fish it with even the broken wire being the only size and color we had left we found that a lot of fish really did react in a different light because that rabbit was right off the eye of the hook Hmm. and no longer attached to the bend so it gave it this crazy lifelike movement and yeah it was it was really cool to see that and it just it triggered more response from fish. So I thought, man, it'd be really cool if you could do that in a smaller form. And I started talking to Jason and, you know, Jason working with Wopsy, he's one of the founders, not of the material, but really how to make it successful. And that is micro pine squirrel, which is a smaller version of rabbit where you get the same flexibility in the material. It's very supple. It's cut very thin, one-eighth in width and it's very you can cut it as long as you need and you can tie them all the way down to a size 20 and so i came home and i remember tying up my first olive mini leech and that was in 2008 and i fished it in different colors i first started out with just micro pine squirrel i played around with flash i found and ultimately fell in love with ostrich hurl and that's how the fly came to be it's a flash body ostrich hurl collar into a micro pine squirrel tail or wing and fishing that thing, man, it has just really become one of the staples in, in my arsenal as far as mm-hmm. guiding is concerned. And, and you'll love this Dave. This is what yeah. I tell my clients. There's two food supplies that I find are very effective and important year round that trout can find pretty much all year, no matter what water level is, how dirty the water is. And that is midges 
and leeches yeah. and it's always leech season. So that's where, <laughs> that's where, that's where it was born. And I turned it into Umqua in 2010 and lo and behold, Bruce called me back and said, Hey, we'd love to take this fly, which was really, really cool. I'd never even thought of myself of having production flies or designing flies and, you know, something in the public eye or commercially. And from that moment, it, it just started to build. But the other point I wanted to make and share with you, which is really I think this is important because a lot of great fly designers in the world today, when they want their flies to be commercially tied and they hope for success with the flies, it can take a while for people to find confidence. I mean, I really didn't start to see results from the mini leech in regards to how many people were using it or a difference in sales until I would say 2016 or 17. And that's when the fly really started to gain traction. People realized what it was. They found the fly. And from there on, it's it's really been, from what I found, helpful for many anglers. So I'm I'm happy for that. That's cool. Yeah. And so <laughs> and that makes sense. I mean, obviously you got some flash. And then on the the micro uh, the pine squirrel, so it right. literally is just sitting there, like you got it tied on the front, and it's just hanging around. Wag the whole basically the whole uh, squirrel is just wagging in the in the water. It is. Yeah, and that's exactly right. So it's tied on a curved hook, a 2488H, which is a heavy style curved hook with a straight eye and. With the curvature of the hook down and the micro pine squirrel extending one length, the length of the hook shank. So it's one one hook length shank and another. It's about an inch long. You can cut it even three quarters of an inch. And it's just sitting there pulsating, undulating right off the wing, which when you look at leeches in the water, they have a thick head tapered to its slim tail. And that's mm-hmm. where the ostrich collar, that ostrich curl acts like the head of the leech. And then it tapers thin to the back. It really sure. does effectively show especially when it's wet when it's dry it kind of looks like a mohawk gone wrong yeah and then it gets wet (laughs) and you see it come to life so it's pretty fun to see it that's right uh talk a little (laughs) bit about how you would fish that so when would you pull that out and just give us a quick little snippet there sure yeah you know i would fish the unweighted micro pine squirrel the unweighted mares mini leech i'm effective fishing that in multiple ways it can be the lead fly in front of a streamer where it looks like a streamer's chasing the leech. It could be a trailing fly off of a streamer, where when the fish comes over and is attracted to a streamer, it turns and sees this unweighted little snack and takes it. Um, it can be a, a lead fly below an anchor or above an anchor fly on a Euro-style rig, where you have an anchor fly below deep in the run, and this fly off a tag is pulsating, waving, and undulating at the current. And then it can be a lead fly with a weighted fly below, on a normal nymph drift, or it can be a trailing fly off a weighted fly when you're using an indicator style, or most importantly, one of my favorites is off a micro swivel, attaching a piece of tippet or straight from an intermediate sinking line with a piece of fluorocarbon on a loop knot, you can swing it and swing it through runs. Oh, nice. Yeah. Wow, that's cool. (laughs) Yeah, there's multiple, multiple ways to fish it, and that's really what was cool about this book is in most fly time books, when I opened them up in the past, you know, Charlie Cravens, John Barr, Blaine, all these wonderful tires and designers, one thing I've always wished for was diagrams. You know, how do you rig this fly? How do you put it together? And Dave Hall was really, we were fortunate in having him get on board and making eight illustrations, which show how to rig the flies in the book with measurements and also different ways of delivering those with dries, nymphs, and streamers. So that's super helpful where... Mm. You can tie the fly, learn how to fish the fly, read the history, and ultimately sit there and go, oh, this is how I can rig it. And it just really fuels the mind with ideas on how to fish it effectively. 
Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, that's that's really awesome. So, talk about the you mentioned the streamer. So, if you were fishing the the uh, the mini leech, what would be potentially if you were to put a, a main streamer on as your lead mm-hmm. fly? What might you put on there if you're gonna? What other pattern would you put on there? <laughs> that's a great question. So, one of my favorites. It's actually in the book. It's titled the animal. It's an unbelievable crayfish pattern. It's not commercially tied either. Like if you get the book, you dive into the pages, you get a chance to tie this fly, which is a crush. It's a killer fly for not only trout, but pike and carp. I mean, it really does reflect. And when you see it, it looks like the Muppets character of the animal. It's hilarious, <laughs> but that's how we came up with the name. Uh-huh. So I'm like, oh yeah, we should call that the, the animal. So if I'm fishing the animal, and that is a weighted streamer, tungsten bead eyes, I'll trail the mini leech 24 to 36 inches behind the actual animal. And I'll attach it with a clench knot to the bend of the hook on the streamer. And then I'll extend it with a loop knot to the mini leech. So it just moves freely, has a lot of motion in the current. And then let's say I'm fishing a, let's say a finesse changer, Blaine's finesse changer. And I want that to represent a bait fish. And I want a bait fish to act like it's chasing something. Then I'll trail the game changer behind the mini leech where the game changer is tied with the loop knot. The mini leech is attached, bend an eye with an improved clinch knot. And now you have a little baby, you know, trout or par trout that's chasing a leech through the water. And that's almost guaranteed to piss off a giant trout. So, (laughs) (laughs) or a pike alike. Yeah. Pretty cool. There you go. And you're in like techniques wise, it sounds like, yeah, you could swing this or you can nip the, I mean, it sounds like you can do almost anything with this setup. You can. Or at least with the mini leech. You can. And the one thing about leeches to remember too, Dave, and this is important. I started really studying and when you're out guiding, one of the, the great things you learn about senses that all of us as humans possess is that you become aware of your area. You have situational awareness. So you're not only looking at the angler and the water and the trout, you're seeing things around. You're investigating for a hatch. You're looking for bugs. You're looking for your sight fishing for trout with your peripheral vision. And I started really concentrating on looking for leeches. Do I see leeches? Where would leeches be found? And not leeches where you pick up vegetation, you find it in your hand and you freak out and drop it, right? Because yeah. <laughs> that's oftentimes can happen. I'm talking about leeches moving in the water, especially still water, like how do leeches move? And it's in, it's unbelievable. Typically when they're moving, they're in a water column that's only 24 inches below the surface of the water. And a lot of these leeches are found in a variety of colors, but they're incredibly long. They could be an inch to four inches in length. And what really blows me away they're crazy fast. They move so quickly in the water. It's amazing just mm. to see how fast they are and how much energy a trout would have to expend to chase down the leech. And for example, if you're swinging, like when we swing flies, we love to swing on those soft edges that go mm-hmm. to almost those dead currents on the edge or the dead eddy, right? That's almost like that slack water off a of fast current. It's like hanging on the edge of the sushi train and you're trying to grab your sushi, right? That conveyor <laughs> belt. So that's what the trout are doing. And the cool thing about a leech is that you can swing it in the fast current, intermediate or sinking head, and go right into the dead water in the side. And once the leech is delivered to the dead water, it doesn't have to stay there. Then you start retrieving it like a streamer. And it really does mimic that motion and natural movement of the leech. It's really cool. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a, that's an awesome tip as well. So basically, yeah, swing it in and then strip it in. So swing it in yeah. slow and then strip it. So on these leeches, so you just described, I mean, you're talking find those leeches in that slower water. Uh, and are you right. talking now, you mentioned still water. Are we talking uh, still waters too, or is this mostly focused uh, on some of these patterns? You could talk about your book or the mini sure. leech. Mostly, uh, is this rivers or everything? Everything, yeah. And it's, you know, the diversity in what I have, available being South Park on the South Platte River drainage where I guide full time. It's an enormous plateau basin. It's 200 miles in circumference. And within the 200 miles, we have 27 miles of public river systems, headwaters, tailwaters, freestones. And then we have three stillwaters that produce trophy trout. So for example, last year I did 72 trips on stillwaters and the remaining trips were on rivers. And whether it's on a fly craft or a hog island skiff, or on foot, I've really fallen in love with the idea and thought that you can hunt and stalk fish on still waters just like you do salt water. And the same can be said in rivers. And that's why leeches are so world renowned is because they're literally found in both fisheries. Right. So if you had to pick one fly, and that's why, again, it goes, this is the funny thing, right? It always goes back to the woolly bugger. Uh, that's why the woolly bugger is such a killer pattern, yeah. right? It is. No, it's, it's true. Like the recent article I have in Fly Fisherman, which I love the title, by the way. If you have a chance, anybody's listening to, yeah. to read this article, it's Flies That Don't Suck. <laughs> there you <laughs> like, go. That's perfect, right? Yeah. But in the history, in diving into and researching about leeches, that's exactly what the woolly bugger was designed for. It's the original design of a leech, which dates back many, many years. And from then, it's really built to you know become this staple pattern you want in your box. And I think What's realistic about the woolly bugger is it can match the larger leeches. The disadvantage in fishing a woolly bugger is the downsize. So if you downsize to, let's say, a size 22, the next time you're out on the river or the still water, especially rivers, flip over the rocks, you'd be shocked that probably one out of five or one out of 10 rocks will possess those micro leeches, those little half inch or three quarter inch. Those little leeches, when they're released, swept off of, or pushed down the river, it's a non-escaping meal for trout. You know, a lot of your hatches are insects that can escape. Obviously, bait fish can see, fry can see, crayfish. Leeches cannot. So they're free swimming in the current, and the trout know this. I believe that's why they're willing to expend energy to chase, but they can go all the way down to three quarters of an inch, all the way up to four or five inches in length. It's incredible. Well, let's move this over now to, um, we've been talking leeches, the opposite now here. Let's talk about dry. So you've got a few dry flies in your book? I do. I do. I have uh, a cool variety. I have the Sinkit Spinner. I have the Trico, Tails Up Trico. I have the Candy Shop Calabatus. And those are three staple patterns. I have a new one that I can't can't disclose the information on yet, but I'm just as a teaser, I have a really sweet foam pattern coming out next year with Umqua. Oh, which I think will, yeah, it's going to match nicely with the leech family and really becomes kind of the mothership that you can drop flies below. So I'm excited to. <laughs> gotcha. Well, let's pick on one of those. So what, what was the first one you mentioned there for the dry? Yeah. So the tails up trico is, um, or sorry, the secret spinner, I believe is what I mentioned first. That's, that's a really cool design. So it's, it's a fly that's developed in the book that represents the mayfly and it's spent or dead phase of life where the wings are to the side. And they're spinning on the surface. And the challenge when dealing with rising and selective trout oftentimes is that the fish do not want to break the surface and expose themselves to predators above. So it's true. And you'll realize this if 
if you haven't dealt with hair loss, you'll pull your hair out. It'll become <laughs> stressful in many ways. But when you're dry fly fishing and you, you're right on the fish, you've got the perfect drift. The trout comes up and literally pushes your imitation away with its nose. And you're oh, thinking, wow. this is crazy. How am I going to fool this fish? Well, what I learned early on in the stories in the book in detail, but I remember this really kind gentleman, Art, when I started guiding at the Broadmoor Hotel with Colorado Fishing Adventures, I went out with this man and literally for a day, I was net boy. He was <laughs> the most amazing dry fly angler I've ever met. And he halfway through the day, selective fish were really getting picky. He looks over at me and he goes, when in doubt, sink it. And I went, what? What is he talking about? Well, sure enough, all he did was grease a little bit of a leader, put a micro shot on, and he sunk his spinner, and it was hammer town. I mean, it was unbelievable wow. how many fish he really connected with. So with the sinket spinner in the book, I developed a pattern that represents the spent mayfly with a small brass or tungsten or even plastic bead, and it's available in trico colors, blowing olive colors, and PMDs, and it allows you to extend the dry fly setting after the hatch has already happened and the fish start to get selective or they start to slow down, you still get a rise form. The bulge of the back comes up, but you're swinging and you're fishing this sunk dry fly just barely in the film or just below the surface of the water. It's a pretty cool bug. Wow. Wow. That is awesome. So basically you're fishing this thing. I mean, when you cast it, it literally is dead. It's almost like an emerger kind of Similar, yeah, it's just the opposite. So instead of emerging up, it's sinking down. Yeah. So it's in the film dead and it's, you know, spinners in the film. I always think of it, I visualize it where if you have a current and there's wings to the side and you've got that dead mayfly floating, there's two visuals that always come up. It's either it's going to hit one of those foam eddies that have little tornado spirals and it's going to be sucked down or it's going to hit those bump waves or ripples and it's going to be swept below the surface. The minute that happens, the trout know that. And again, it's a non-escaping food supply and boom, they'll be on it instantly. Wow. And when you cast this into, say, a pool and once it hits the water, does it instantly kind of sink or do you have to do something with your line, you know, to get it down? Yeah, that's a great, yeah, great question. The beauty of it is it will naturally sink. So you can strip it if you want to manipulate it early. You can give it a strip. And absolutely, you can just start to really focus on that fly to be sunken down. If you don't do that, then you can allow the weight of either plastic, brass, or tungsten beads to sink the fly down, whether it's shallow or whether it's a fast descent. You have those you know, opportunities and ways of manipulating the fly as well. Gotcha. And talk about, so if we don't have this in front of us, give us a quick little, um, describe it just quickly, the materials, and then maybe a tip of, of something that, you know, that somebody can take away from this on tying it. Yeah, no, I'm really glad you asked that. The, when you're tying this fly, the tip is, and the secret is, when you're tying the wings, and the Tails Up Trico has plastic wings, and you're developing the body and the tail, I'm not as concerned about splitting tails, whether it's two prongs or three prongs of a tail. I'm more, it's more important, my behalf, when I'm tying this fly, to have it where you have a bunch of tails sticking out of the back. And the wings, when you tie the wings in, you want them flush to the sides. So you're going to use a bow tie pattern or technique when you're manipulating your thread. And just remember in tying the fly, bow ties are very difficult to learn and they're very stressful and they can cause wreak havoc on your fly tying session. The secret to bow ties is to have thread control. So instead of allowing tension the whole time you're rotating the thread over the hook shank, you want to keep it in one position and almost do a loop roll with the thread mm -hmm. and then cinch it down on the other side. 
And the other thing you can do, and this is what I learned from Charlie, is you can twist the bobbin, forming a rope with your mm-hmm. thread, which grabs the material easier, and then you can seat it down in that behalf. And then lastly, when you're tying hackle, the hackle doesn't go around the back and over the top and in front of the wings. The hackle stays placed behind the wings. Mm. So when you see mayflies, the wings are spent to the side. With the hackle behind the wings, it allows the fly to land on the surface, wings down, and it allows the hackle to pulsate and undulate and move like the dead legs of the natural when it's sunken below the surface. There you go. Yeah, that's some that's some upper level stuff there. And so the tails, that's a good one, right? So tails, so we don't have to be focused on having the exact perfect three tails of the mayfly, you're saying. You could just put a few tails. If you have more than three, that's fine. Is that what you're saying there? Exactly. Yeah. Micro fibbits, that's the material used for the tails. And absolutely. A really good friend and another mentor of mine is Ed Engel. And if you've ever watched Ed Engel fly, time flies at mm-hmm. the fly fishing show and such, he's he's incredible. He might actually be one of the best tires in terms of having thread control. He can split a trico tail to where it's perfect. Three splits are absolutely beautiful. But when you're tying production or when you're sinking the fly, a lot of these adults are crippled. They're not always landing in the perfect, beautiful form they are as if they're laying eggs when their wings are upright. When the wings are down, they're swept around, they hit debris, they hit the edge of the river, and they become almost in a cripple state, or they don't look as natural as they would when they're laying eggs and done on top, or they're flying and just lightly land. That's why the, the tail is not as important as it would be to split the tails. And yeah, it really does help just give that lifelike appearance when it's moving through the water as well. Gotcha. Okay. Let, let, let's go. You mentioned the candy shop. I'm curious about the one. Is there a story behind that fly? That sounds interesting. <laughs> yeah. I love it. And that's one of my favorite things. So I've, I've always thought about, so whenever I have a fly in front of me, it, in so many things that we do in sports, especially in fly fishing, we all obtain the visual. Now, obviously the main visual we want is a giant trophy fish. Well, when, when I look at a fly, I look at the fly and it usually reminds me of something. There's something that attracts my eye and I think, oh, it, it looks like this. Or if it's not the, what it looks like, it's the reaction the fish give mm. to the fly. And I think of, oh, that could be a great name. So mm. when I think of the candy shop, Calabatus, Calabatus, if you haven't fished that hatch, it's unbelievable. It's, it's actually my favorite of all mayfly. Mm or done style hatches where you get adults landing on the surface and laying eggs. And the reason it's my favorite is Calabatus make like the Chevy commercial. They're like a rock. They don't move. Really? So when when they land, they're still as can be. And then the trout, when they come by, it's almost like the trout are just, they become so vibrant and, you know, the reactions, the colors, they light up, they come over and boom, they smash it. You know, any one of the Calabatus duns or spinners. And when I was watching this, I was like, man, they're eating these things like a kid in a candy shop. And so hence the name Candy Shop mm-hmm. Calabatus. It's it's one of those flies where it has a really bright cider on it, a really bright orange cider, like a piece of candy. And the trout eat it like a kid would be in a candy shop. Mm-hmm. And what's really the advantage there is that there can be so many Calabatus spinners or duns on the water surface that you literally could lose sight of your fly. I know we hear that a lot. And it can become quite cliche in our sport. But this is a moment during that hatch where you're covered in adults and you're looking in the water and you're thinking, there's no way that I'm going to be able to detect the fly. And that's why that cider, that really bright orange or pink cider makes all the difference in the world. There you go. So it's basically a, a just like a hot spot, essentially. Is that is that what we're talking about here? 
Yep, it's a hot spot and it's a hybrid dry fly. So it's a dry fly that's designed to mimic and represent two phases. It can represent duns or it can represent wings up and it can also represent and does represent wings down. So you're having a spent fly and an adult fly. And when the trout see this imitation, the wings that extend from the body of rubber are below a hackle on top. So you have a hackle that's really dense and thick above the wings, which allows this fly to represent wings up. Or when the trout are looking up from below and you have spent wings to the side, it'd be wings down, which is really an advantage because you can match multiple phases of the hatch and you're still able to see the fly from a great distance. Right on. Right. And, and describe that again for somebody that isn't aware on the whole life cycle. Uh, we haven't dug into sure. a ton on etymology, but you got the done. You mentioned wings up, wings down. Describe that cycle in relation to this fly. What are the, the parts of that? Oh, absolutely. And to simplify that, the way to think of it is when an adult insect's on the surface, whether it's laying eggs or just landing, and it's alive, the wings are upright, straight up in the air like a sailboat. So visualize that the sailboat's appearance to the trout. When the insect, mayfly, or adult dies, the wings are laying to the side. So it's spent to the side and it's dead. When we have multiple phases in a hatch where wings are upright or wings are down, I personally think that trout identify the wings as one of the key silhouettes or features of the food supply. So if the wings are upright, they see mainly legs. If the wings are spent to the side, they see body and they see wings. When they're dead, they're not going to escape. And that's why I think it's important, especially with the candy shop, to have the wings to the side. Mm. And then the done, is that describe that again, how that fits in, into the cycle? Yeah. So when you have wings upright and you have duns and you have spinners and spinners being laying eggs and duns upright, the key is not so much to get lost in what stage the hatch is in. The key is to be concentrating on what image is available to the trout. And if you have wings upright, what the trout or what the food supply looks like from below is different. That's why a parachute atoms, I think, is incredibly effective because you have the hackle around a post. And when the trout's looking up from below, it sees the thin body. And then the hackle represents the legs. And a lot of your dry flies when they have post upright, when you have spun hackle around the post, it really does mimic the wings upright stage in the life cycle. When the wings are to the side, especially in calabatus, they have enormous wings. The trout, when they look up, they see the legs, but most importantly, they see the wings. So wings upright or wings spent are the two things I really concentrate on when I'm trying to understand when and how the fish are actively feeding. Once the adults are dead on the surface, they've laid their eggs, wings are spent to the side, and they're dead and available to the trout. That's really when the feeding frenzy starts. I mean, it's out of control. They'll just come up and start big gulping right. mouthfuls of these things. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty cool. There you go. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, so so basically the done is when that mayfly hatches off of the water and flies away, that's the done stage. And then the spinner is the fly when it's come back down to lay the eggs on the water. Yeah. And the spinners, you know, when, when you have that availability to the trout and there's the egg laying session going on and you can see them in abundance everywhere, that's really when the hatch starts to progress. But mainly that's when the feeding starts to progress. And that is a humongous difference when it comes to the reaction and a lot of the, I'd say, movement from the fish. You'll see some fish start to feed early, but when you start approaching midday, 12, 1 or 2 o'clock, you can really see a difference in just how available the food is and how 
the reaction of the fish is out of control. They just start eating nonstop. It's amazing. You mentioned the uh, the parachute a couple times. I'm curious if you have a, a parachute like or anything similar to a parachute in in your book. No, I don't have anything in the book matching the parachute, but you could tie any one of these imitations with a parachute style, just simply by providing thread base around a post, which could be poly yarn or a cider, and then ap- applying the hackle around the post. You could do that above the wings instead of just having an upright post. So you could do either one. You could have hackle around the body or hackle around the post. All you're going to do is make sure you match it to the wings and and be certain that the wings are available to the side where the trout could see those. Gotcha. So you, you're not necessarily, I always think of, I always go to the Adams parachute, right? Because it's such a, a, a standard or whatever. But when you think of tying a, a parachute fly, you're not necessarily tying like a standard parachute Adams or something like that. You're, you're focused more on the stuff that you're using, you know, that works for you. And then I'm trying to get to that point. Like, why would you, why is, remind us again, why the parachute is such a killer pattern versus these three we're talking about here. Well, no, yeah, the parachute's nice because when the trout's looking up, it'll see legs. It, think of it as a versatile dry fly. So it could match a bluing olive, a PMD, a trico, a calabatus. And the parachute atoms is what I will use when I'm dealing with a lot of selected trout in the surface of the water in any still water setting until the spinners, you know, the spawned out adults mm-hmm. that are laying eggs and yep. dying with the wings to the side. What I'll oftentimes do is put a parachute on the front and then I'll trail the candy shop calabatus behind. And it starts out fishing the parachute in the front. And then when those spinners land and they lay their eggs and they're spawned out and they're dying, all of those food supplies to the trout become available. That's when they hit the trailing fly. And before that, they could hit the parachute in the front. So it's two ways of delivering, yeah, different stages of the hatch, but most importantly, giving the trout a different view as well. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Deddy Flies, established in 1928, is one of the oldest family-run fly shops in the country. You know, I love the history on the podcast. I always love digging into a topic and I love always getting some background information. Uh, On this episode, we got Landon Mayer is going to dig into a bunch of people that have influenced him over the years and some good old uh, great names from people. So just reminds me how... How great I feel when I have somebody like Deddy on as a sponsor who has a huge amount of history, uh, including all the way back to those cat skill style dry flies and everything they have going. So this is my chance to share that Deddy tradition with you. Uh, located in Livingston Manor, Deddy is your welcoming place on the creek or online. Their retail online shop has a large selection of flies, materials, fly fishing gear, and more. Of course, Deddy also offers fly fishing and casting lessons as well as guided trips. For more information, head over to uh, Deddy Flies. That's wetflyswing.com slash Deddy. That's D-E-T-T-E. You can also reach them at 845-439-1166. You support this podcast by clicking through that link or calling Deddy on the phone. Okay, let's get back to the show. So you're fishing, I mean, obviously the streamers and nymphing and stuff, the tandem flies and even three flies sometimes. So your dry flies, you're fishing like multiple flies too a lot of times? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then the book, it, it shows, nice thing about the diagram in the book is it actually shows how to do double dry fly rigs. And the cool thing about dry flies is you really want to focus on 
the knots that you're using, but most importantly, it's the distance between your dry flies. Yeah. That really becomes very, very important because you need to have opportunities for the trout to see the fly, but also you need to make sure that when they come up, your flies are not separated by 24 inches. In fact, uh, a lot of times these flies are only separated six to 12 inches because oh, wow. the closer, yeah, the closer the trout is to the surface, the narrower the viewing lane. It doesn't have that wide ice cream cone or stadium appearance above its eyes to see the distance or see two flies separated by two feet. You'd rather have them only a foot apart or less. Mm. So it has an opportunity to see both food supplies. Very cool. Yeah. Describe that just quickly on the uh, the your leader setup. So if you're fishing the dry, like you said, you got the parish or you know you got a double tandem fly on. How would you tie that leader? What would that look like? And say maybe just pick a situation. I'm not sure what size patterns or you know pick your favorite situation and talk about that. Oh yeah, absolutely. So if you're having a situation or you're having a dry fly setting and you know evolve or take place in front of you and you're wanting to deliver to selective trout, I think the most important thing about rigging dries is length of leader. And I learned this when I went with set fly fishing and we fished in South America at the base of the Andes. And when I went out there, they kept telling me, get ready. We're going to fish 15, 20 foot leaders. And it's common to have winds up to 30, 40 miles an hour. Well, back here, we have, we have wind like that all the time here in South Park. So I thought, oh yeah, no problem. Well, when I get out there and I start fishing a 15 to 20 foot leader, it's a completely different animal. But the beauty of it is that when the fly line is not as close to the dry fly and you have the freedom of a leader and tippet landing. It gives more movement, suppleness in the current. You can get a longer lat or longer extension of your fly in a softer land. And when I rig dry flies, I'll typically do a leader that's seven and a half and then from seven and a half feet using triple surgeon's knots or blood knot, whatever you're comfortable with, I'll attach a midsection. And then I'll attach a tippet section. So I'll take a monofilament leader. I'll attach monofilament in the middle section. And my tippet section, and this is key for smaller bugs, if it's 5X or smaller, I'll use fluorocarbon. And yes, fluorocarbon does sink monofilament nylon floats. But fluorocarbon in 5X or smaller is not a thick enough diameter to sink a dry fly. And the beauty of that is that you don't worry about light reflection. You have more strength that's abrasion resistant and you spook less fish and get more reaction. So that's how it would set up the leader and then attaching it to the first fly. The first flies to the eye of the hook and then the tippet is to the bend of the hook and then trailing six to 12 inches. I'll attach the second fly and the second dry fly is attached with a loop knot. And the reason for that is while these flies are spent or they're in the current spinning, you don't want them to fight each other. So that's why the loop knot and the trailing dry fly is best. That's right. That's right. And what is the loop? Is that a standard loop knot or what would be the knot you would look at? Yeah, just a standard loop knot, non-slip yeah. mono loop knot. Yeah. yeah and you can, you can get used to tying them. You know, when you practice at home, just get used to tying them to where the loop can be about the same size as the eye of the hook, maybe a little bit larger, but you want to practice getting them incredibly small. And once you do that, give it freedom of motion by gotcha. making it the same size as the uh, eye of the hook, and you'll be able to get that thing to spin. That's good. So yeah, you don't want a big loop on that loop now. You want as small as you can get it, which isn't easy to do, right? That's not super easy. <laughs> right. It's not. It's not easy to do. It takes practice. And I joke because when people ask me that in the class, well, how would you mimic and represent Go home, turn on the fan, 
have a family member spray water into the fan and start tying flies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty similar to what you'll do with that there. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, that's it. All right, well, let's take it to, uh, you know, let's take it to dips really quick. Uh, so we sure. talked about some streamers. We talked about some dries. What, what's uh, Give us a nip from the book that would, if you had to pick one out. Yeah, I think for nips, one of my, there's a couple of them, but I, one of my favorites in the book is Landon's Larva. It's a caddis imitation. Mm. And it's a pattern that, and this is also very important to mention because in fly design, even let's say you have a popular fly and you work with a company for years and years, that does not guarantee that that company is going to pick up every design you make. And I think a lot of people believe once you get your foot in the door, every fly is a possibility and every fly is accepted. Well, one of my flies that was not accepted was the Landon's Larva, which is a caddis imitation that I tied around the same time or designed around the same time in, what was that, 2006, when I was doing a lot of work with the leeches or starting to think about leeches and designing these other imitations. But it's a cool fly and one of those where when you're dealing with a caddis larva, another individual, I was very fortunate when I was young, I was exposed to these amazing anglers and Phil Camera, which some may not know who Phil is, Phil is the godfather of synthetic flies. Hmm. And the reason for that is he developed larva lace, which was one of the very first synthetic materials used to tie flies. And he made this awesome fly called a heathen, which he would actually feed tubing up onto the hook shank and then tie it down. It was a really unique looking fly. Well, when I noticed how that looked in in hand and in the water, it looked like semi-transparent with really great separation and segmentation. So I thought, man, there's got to be a way to design a caddis. And he showed me his olive larva lace. And this was, I believe, I started guiding in 1997. And Phil showed me his larva lace in 1999 or 2000. And when he showed me this material in the smaller size, I would just cut the tip, tie it in at the bend of the hook, kind of a pointed arrow, cinch it down and then wrap the body with flash so the the flash of the body could be bright green or bright orange and i would then wrap this material around the hook shank and have a scrubby looking you know almost like throat out dubbing as the head and then match with that body it really did represent on a curved style hook like a jbo1 hook it matched the the larvas that you would see all over from the caddis a lot of your green and brown caddis larvae. So that's one of the cool patterns. I think it's really easy to tie. And the other advantage and beauty of it is you can manipulate colors to your liking. You can do, they have midge ribbing now, they have D-rib, they have larva lace, sky's the limit because synthetics are so readily available. But that's one of my favorite nymphs just because of its origin, gotcha. where it started and yeah, what it represents. It's a pretty cool fly. That's it. Well, what's the, uh, what's the, like the thorax? Cause this is kind of that, like a lot of the bodies kind of the abdomen, right? A big abdomen. Then the thorax sure. is kind of like ostrich or something like that. Or what are you using there? Well, I thought about ostrich when I first started tying it. It's funny you bring that up because ostrich was the first material. The thing I loved about ostrich and love in many of my designs is it gives, it gives breathability, flexibility, subsurface, but it holds its form, which mm-hmm. is true. But then I started using ice dub and the beauty of ice dubbing is that it really does it's hard to get it fine and tight in a rope when you dub it onto the hook shank. It has a lot of you know spare parts moving all over the place. You have all these fibers sticking out everywhere, and that's what you want. Instead of trying to match specific legs, just like the tails on the mayflies, we just want 
that material to flare out to the side to look like legs because we're trying to match the silhouette. So I use ice dubbing, peacock dubbing, or brown dubbing and ice. All of those are just thorax. And then you throw it out with your teaser. Just get it to stick out as much as possible. Have it, have it become a bad hair day. And then if you want, you can also attach a tail. When you first tie the fly, you're going to wrap the thread back to the bend of the hook. And you can put any material as a tail then flash the body, wrap in the D-rib or the larva lace, wrap that forward towards the thorax, and then build that iced up thorax with finish and you're done. Again, three to four materials, super easy easy steps, but very, very effective. Easy. And that's falling on the same lines. We talked about easy and easy is in the title of your book. And that's another one where it's just, you're popping this thing out in a, a few minutes. Yes. Yeah. And it's, And there was, it's funny you bring that up because when you're dealing with the title of the book, this was a pain, (laughs) painstaking process. Like it takes forever. Yeah. Yeah. Walk us through that land. This is because I know uh, you've got a a pretty heavy hitter helping you, right? With the whole publishing part of it. But yeah, talk about how that title comes to you because it's not, it can't be easy, right? It's not, it's not. So it's like the biggest challenge for me when I'm doing shows or I'm traveling is I try to keep everything fresh. I have new presentations every year or a revamp or refresh of a presentation. And you really want it to capture somebody's eye. It's like, you know, first impressions, everything. When you pick up a book and you read the book, you've basically got one sentence to capture that reader's attention and get them to open up your book. It doesn't hurt when you have some awesome trout porn on the cover and you have a giant fish that obviously helps. But what I wanted this book to represent is what the flies mean to me, but most importantly, where they began, the starting point, and that's where guide flies came into play because these flies are designed for the purpose of guiding to be effective on the water. That's all that means. You have to produce, you have to have numbers and pay attention to detail. Then when it says easy to tie patterns for tough trout, those are the words that you really had to dive into and think about. And Mm -hmm. the first word that we came up with was simple. Well, simple and easy have a similar meaning, but it's not the same thing. Hmm. A simple fly means that a lot of the flies make and design is simple, yeah. which the, a lot of these flies in the book, they're not simple. They're easy to tie, but it, it wasn't a simple process in designing the fly. So I thought simple is not a good yeah. word. No, I thought easy is a better word because you can relate and say, oh, it's easy to tie the pattern. And then leading into that, it was what kind of trout? What kind of trout are you fishing for? Is it a selective trout? which to a beginning angler could be, uh, that's too much. I'm, I'm not at that phase yet. I'm just trying to catch trout. I don't want to worry about selected trout. Or if it's a very advanced angler, selected trout to us are very tough. Or if you're ultimately, the two things most anglers talk about at the end of the day is numbers of fish they caught or the big one they landed yeah. or the big one that got away. And those are all tough situations to deal with. So that's where tough trout came into play. And from there, uh, the rest is history. And then, of course, below that, and giving respect to everybody in the book, includes Mare's signature designs and other favorites. And that's when you turn the book to the back, you can see the list of contributors. And Kevin Davidson is another one. Just really good people that delivered flies and having Charlie's blurb and Blaine's blurb and Skip and Ann Morris on the back and John yeah. Barr. Just it, We're all a family. We're all a community. And that's what I really love about our sport. In addition to to your podcast, Dave, and what you're yep. doing. It's about giving back, which helps yep. us all grow and become ultimately better anglers. 
Exactly. Yeah. Having a better, having a more enjoyable time out there. Everybody wants to catch more fish, right? Bigger fish. Yeah. You know, you don't have to, you're, you're exactly. okay if you, if you don't get the big sure. one, but, sure. but it's exactly. good to have that. So, okay. Well, Absolutely. I think we're doing good here. Let, let's take it, start to take it out of here with the, uh, we have a new segment called coffee talk. And this morning is, uh, I'm not sure what you're drinking this morning, but I always love to, I guess for you, actually you're an hour. So it's actually getting closer to like 10, right? That your time. Yeah. Take a guess. What do you think I had this morning? Did I have coffee or something else? What would be, what would be your guess? God, you know, for you, I'm guessing you had something else. I'm going to say you're more like a tea type of person. That's a good guess. I do drink green tea. Yeah. Um, this morning, I'm actually diving into my wings. I'm drinking a Red Bull. <laughs> oh, I love that. See, this, this, this is what's beautiful about this, uh, Landon, is that we're, we've been, we're always in the process of looking for new sponsors and stuff like that, you know, and, right, and, right. and this is like one of those things where it's like, okay, uh, that's kind of an interesting thing. Let's see. There you go, Red Bull. So if Red Bull's Red out Bull. there, they want to su- support, uh, you know, and I know I was going to talk to you about that a little bit because I know you had some sponsors. I had some questions about some cool sponsors there that you're working with. Sure. But, um, sure. but yeah, that's funny. So, but yeah, on the coffee talk, we always like to take it to just kind of going back to, again, our listeners and who's out there. And we had a question. And this one, I'm not sure if you can answer. And this was Tim in the Facebook group was talking about, and I'm actually not sure if you have one of your flies has this, but like feather wings on streamers. I mean, for a lot of people, that's tough. I mean, that's tough for me getting those wings to tie tight. Start there. Like, do you have any flies, you know, do you tie the feather wings on top? Is that something you are, you know, kind of an expert at or what's your take there? Yeah, no, I'm not necessarily an expert at that. And I always consider myself a student, to be honest. Like if I'm, if there's a new phase or a new way of tying a fly or going to these shows and learning from other tires, I mean, that's what keeps us all able to give back and, and help other anglers become better anglers or other tires become better tires. And when you're dealing with feathers, a good example of that for me would be ostrich hurl. Ostrich hurl is, is incredibly difficult and feathers are the same alike because most of the time when you're dealing with feathers and fibers, you have a certain mold to the material or the feather itself, yeah. meaning that there's a curvature. And when you're tying streamers or you're tying an ostrich, Anything that has feather and curvature to it, you want to match that to become the same curvature or the same silhouette of the body. So if there's a curve to the feather, and let's say it's slightly left, if I'm going to palmer that around the body, or if I'm going to make that a head or a schloppen or something I'm trying to build a base with, I want to make sure that two things, you want the curve to match the silhouette of the design. And then every time you wrap around, every time you rotate the feather around a hook shank, use your non-dominant hand to comb it out or massage it out. Mm. So you're molding the material in between wraps. And by doing that, it helps mold and keep control of the fibers and feather and allow it to really form the base or the part of the body or even the tail that you're looking for to make the design whole. Gotcha. So basically, and that's part of the, and I always think as you're talking, I'm thinking of the, um, I guess we didn't talk about stoneflies this uh, episode, but you know, like the sofa pillow is a big, kind of a big wing. I guess it actually has, I think that's more elk hair. But if you think about the wing, what, what's a fly, t- think of a fly, like a spruce fly, right? Mm-hmm. A spruce fly is a good old school fly. It's got, it's very standard. It's got your hackle up front and then it's got like a wing of um, a long, the paired hackled wings right on the back of the fly. Right. Is that something that you you see out there a lot with like either your flies or other people? Are they is that still? I know you see it in like steelhead flies and stuff like that, but I'm not sure like sure. In streamers and stuff. Are you seeing that out there quite a bit? You see it more now. I would say probably the biggest 
advancement I've seen with feathers is when when you see streamer imitations, like again, Blaine Chocolate's Feather Game Changer. Oh yeah. When when you have a complete changer in spines where the body's connected and it moves and it's made out of feathers, I personally find feathers in, you know, the drunken disorderly with Tommy Lynch and the big Johnson with Chad Johnson, all these other awesome flies and a bunch of Kelly's designs have the same idea with Marabou. What I really, I think, enjoy about streamers with feathers is they're lighter and they're easier to cast because ultimately you're not tying a streamer just to make it a big food supply and a meal. You have to think about the performance because it's a larger fly. So if you're casting this when it's wet and you have feathers, it's going to be easier to cast. It's not going to retain as much water. If you have something that's dense and you have a lot of fibers or synthetics, it's going to hold more water like a sponge and you're not able to wring it out between casts. Yeah. That's why feathers really can be an advantage. And that's going back to the muddler meno. That was the first design I ever made. And yeah, dealing with feathers is the first exposure I had to that. So that's That's really, that's really what you're trying to do is just match. Just think of it where you're matching the curvature and also the way the spine is designed, where the spine is typically on one side of the feather and the materials flared out to the other side, you have to match those up accordingly. And I remember Schultze, when he taught me this, um, just watching him tied in a Jersey show and, and Schultz Outfitters, it, it's an awesome, awesome shop. And he did a great job explaining this, but you want to take each one of the feathers and let's say you have them on both sides of the fly. You want to make sure that you're plucking feathers and matching them. So they're the same size before you tie them in. And the way that they look when you connect them in your hand is the way that they should look when you tie them onto the fly. So when you talk about the spruce fly and the muddler minnow, that's a feather right on top of the hook shank. And you need to make sure that you do one loose wrap and look at the fly, adjust the feather, adjust the material, then seat it or cinch it down. Always give it that adjustment. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. So don't go to your full, strong, uh, finished, tight wrap. You kind of do a loose one just to kind of then adjust it and then come exactly. back with a tighter loop. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think somebody else, I can't remember, again, these episodes for me all blend in, but somebody was also talking about where I think this is an easier way to secure these feather, oh, any material really, but you know, at the base, when you pluck it off, you, instead of plucking it off clean, the, the hackle fibers, when you tie it in, you yeah. actually trim, leave a little bit of, right, a like short little, because that actually, you can secure the feather better. Is that something? So true. That's a great tip. That kind of helps on, and I, again, I, I'm trying to think of like, okay, how do you, again, I don't know if that helps <laughs> it get straight. I think you describe how to keep it straight, but uh, that might help it sure. secure and stay in a little better. Oh, absolutely. Just, yeah, leaving feathers at the base of the spine, twisting ropes so it grabs material, making sure that you measure them in hand, all of these tips. And again, all of these are tips that I learned or you've learned or others learn. And we apply all of those pieces, those simple details or small pieces of knowledge, apply them collectively together. And in fly time, what's really neat is that you find a more productive way to produce the fly. So even if you're a specialty tire, and you're not producing flies, you're not a production tire, you're a, a detailed designer, you're still becoming more productive by simplifying each step in the process or finding a tip or trick that makes it easier. And once you do that, you can crank out hundreds or thousands of these flies instead of struggling through wondering how to gain control. And that's what we're trying to do is just control every step of the process. And that's what makes us better fly tires. Yeah, exactly. Nice. Well, let's do one quick one, just a, a quickie before we get out of here. The uh, So one last nip. You, you mentioned you had another one. Do you have one you want to throw out there just as we take this out of here? 
Sure. Yeah. So the other one, which is a really cool design too, is the Mare's Mices. Mm. And that is a fly that's available at Umqua. It has daddy long legs, which are micro rubber legs for the antenna, ostrich hurl for the legs, and then tensile for the thorax and the body. The reason this fly is cool, and for those who have the book or if you're going to grab a copy, mm-hmm. open the book up and look at this fly. It'll blow you away. Three materials. That's all it is. Wow. Three materials. And the complexity of the fly is the materials coming to life. It's not how how difficult it is to tie the fly it's how it looks when it's complete it looks like there's multiple materials multiple steps and it really is cool to see that a fly can be designed with three simple materials and probably three minutes in process and you have in my opinion one of the coolest looking and sleekest looking um, nymphs being the mares mices compared to other mices shrimp patterns and we designed the fly when i say we it's myself and during the time I was fishing with Eric Mondragon from Montana and Matt Wilkerson and all, all the days that we spent fishing my sea shrimp waters being the blue, the frying pan, the tailor, and even the great lakes, we would always try to come up with the best pattern possible, the best pattern. And what I found is that you have my sea shrimp released in water when they're alive. And then you have my sea shrimp that are shredded and dead where they're ripped apart. And this fly moves so much, it could represent and match both phases, alive and dead. It's pretty cool. Mm. The mice shrimp, describe that, because I think for some people might not know exactly what, you know, kind of where this is at, where we're talking about here. Is this a pretty common animal that we're seeing in a lot of streams around the country? Not as much. It's a crustacean like scuds, but they look just like shrimp that you would see moving about any saltwater. And it's a lot of times in these freshwater settings They're little white shrimp. When I say little, they can range anywhere from half an inch to even two inches in length. The state of Colorado supplied them to some of our still waters Mm. in hopes that they would feed the salmon. And what's really ironic Mm. is that the mycy shrimp would move around similar to bait balls. They move up and down in the water column, and they weren't always readily available for the salmon. So the tail out of these reservoirs started releasing the shrimp into the rivers below. What's ironic is that each shrimp is probably the equivalent of five to 10 insects or other natural food supplies. Mm. So it's like, it's like pumping iron like Arnold and just cranking down the protein. And next thing you know, you've got this massive trout and so much protein is consumed that the pigmentation on their body changes. Wow. So you'd have brown trout with literally pink bellies hmm. instead of yellow or orange it was incredible so yeah it's really Amazing. and you it's it's found in great lakes it's found in some of the still waters here and around other areas in the globe but the thing to remember is that it can also simply be used as an attractor like a scud mm-hmm. a trout is not going to pass up seeing a crustacean in the water and they know the presence of crustaceans and it, it is a familiar food supply so whether it's a sow bug scud or a shrimp gotcha. a mycy shrimp these are all attractors you can use in, in a variety of waterways. And is this something you'd be fishing, say, on uh, just your typical nymph or Euro nymph setup sort of thing? Yeah, Euro nymph, you could use it as a connection eye to eye with an anchor fly below. You could have it off of a, a micro swivel or a tippet ring or simply seat it down to a leader setup to where it's a tag or off of a tag. And you can fish it conventional Euro or a conventional indicator style where you have a lead or trailing fly. And then have that drop within deep sections or shallow edges of water and, and even still waters alike. So you can use it multiple ways. You can even strip it too. You know, scuds and sow bugs, mm. when they move subsurface, they move horizontal. 
And you can do the same with the shrimp where you slow retrieve, finger over finger retrieve and get that thing to kind of dart and move in the water columns. Oh, wow. Nice. Yeah. Nice, Landon. Well, this has been good. I think we got through a good list here. Uh, and you nice. mentioned a, a bunch of names here today, and some I knew, some I didn't, but they all sound like some pretty uh, knowledgeable people that helped you along the way. We, you know, sure. as this conversation is talking here, where would you send us? Somebody want to take this further. We're talking about some fly tying and fishing, you know, these flies or any type, you know. Sure. Where would you send them? Do you send them over to like a website, to a, another book, or what do you tell people if they want to dig into something that's maybe not your own stuff? Oh, yeah. No, that's a great question. And that's the reason, you know, for mentioning these other names, the books and what I'm doing is not possible without the kindness of others and the hard work, most importantly, of others. And I'm I'm a community effort type of guy. I believe in camaraderie and people coming together to make us all better anglers. And it really is not it's never about the ego. I mean, if if you have an ego in this sport, all you got to do is meet a selective trout and that's done with. It's over. Right. (laughs) Those fall away to the side. But if I were to suggest flies and books to use, I mean, ultimately, I think one of the best tires that I know is, is Charlie Craven for yeah. sure. And I think I think That's Charlie's awesome. he's not only a good tire, but what really sets him apart from the teaching aspect is that he pays attention. He has so many tips and tricks for details. So if I were to recommend somebody in tying flies, I would for sure recommend Charlie's books. And I, you know, there's so many other great designers out there from. Blaine Chocolate's book from, you know, Game Changer, John Barr's book, Charlie Craven, Skip and Caroline Morris, great people, awesome fly tires. Skip Morris has been doing it a long time. And a lot of people may hear about specific names or not hear as many names brought up in conversation. But I think for Skip and Caroline, they're great teachers. And Skip has a lot of history, a lot of knowledge from frogs, you name it, beyond. I mean, he really does a great job. And I think that really is what's going to help separate a good tire from a great tire is just learning those tips and tricks. But those are just a few that you can grab some copies, get some literature knowledge and yeah, ultimately go from there. Yeah. Those are awesome. Uh, and before we take it out here, Landon, I got a random one for you. This is back to the sponsor thing. I noticed I was looking at some of your a couple of sponsors that you had. Um, tell us about uh, is it ProTrek Casino, ProTrek.Casino, and Fat Tire Ale, right? You got a couple. Talk about yeah. this. Are these uh, these are sponsors that are kind of uh, folks? It sounds like they're locally. I guess Fat Tire is a company that's local in in Colorado. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the sponsors are. It's amazing because you start working with and what companies are looking for professionals in the industry that obviously get exposure to the brand, but ultimately you're bringing in-house knowledge and information. And local is huge. Fat Tire reached out, and Tyler has been a great oh, cool. individual. And yeah, when they reached out to me and said, "Hey, look, we want to help sponsor Clean the Dream. We want to work with you. We want to make these different projects a reality." And it, it's such a, a great foundation of a company, and that's what Fat Tire represents as local, but also they believe in helping people achieve and pursue their dreams. So it was a great fit. And Casio watches with the ProTrek brand. It's actually my connection is from Japan. So I had the watch company reached out to me years ago and asked some questions about designing watches. And I said, you know, there's just some features that are very important. And there's a lot of people in the world now that we have electronic watches and the capability of matching iPhones and watches alike. But when the foundation of this started, I said, you know, you're not always having your phone out. And learning to be able to look at a dial on the watch, not just electronically see the time, it helps you think about not only what time it is, you have to put more thought into it, but it also gives you an idea of the rotation of the dials, kind of like the rotation of the sun. Right. And when you think of things that way, where it's not just timing for the time that you're fishing, but timing for the season, 
timing your hunt, timing weather, yeah, what everything. altitude you're at, all of it's right there. And exactly moon cycles. Exactly. It's really nice to see that on the watches. So it, it's kind of cool. It's fun. And, you know, I've never thought in a million years, 20 years ago, I'd have a watch and beer sponsorship and, and fly fishing, but it's nice to have these brands to work with and I'm forever grateful. So it's a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. I think it's yeah. cool. Yeah, I think it, I think it makes sense, you know, because you were in such everybody you know talks about it's, it's a small niche if you're talking on the business side of things, and uh, right, and it makes sense. There's some great companies out there that want to connect with you know some of the uh, your audience, right? Your, your, your people. Sure. So it may, it makes, absolutely. And when they're great companies, that just makes it easy. It's like for sure, fat tire. <laughs> I've had a few fat tires in my day. I, I love fat <laughs> no, tire. Right? I thought this is great. I could have fat tire the rest of my life. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So absolutely, that's great. <laughs> Nice, Landon. Well, um, we'll send everybody out to, I guess, Landon Mayor Fly Fishing if they want. Well, is that where they should go if they want to get a book? And you also do kind of like a signed, will you do like a signed copy, a special edition? How's that work? Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. So I've, I really like the idea whenever I buy a book, I love having a signature in the book because it, it kind of gives a little table talk or representation. It makes you think of that moment when you got the book or what it's, what the book's value is to you. So for anybody who wants to order the book, you can do it through my website. It's landonmareflyfishing.com. And right on the homepage, it says click here. And you simply give your information, your email address, your name. Most importantly, what you would like the personalization to say. And then I send back a PayPal request. I personally sign the book and send it out to each of these individuals through media mail. And I appreciate you bringing that up. And it's really nice around the Christmas season. Most of my books have come out late fall, early winter. But this one is, it's really a, how much information is in this book blows my mind even. When I look back at the pages and I think, man, how was that even possible? And when yeah. I took when I took the time to take all the step-tie photos during COVID, collectively, it was probably 700 hours of work, just yeah. painstaking work. And I know Charlie's done that in most of his book, but it was a challenge I wanted to take on. And luckily, with COVID, I had the time. So for those who get the book, just really understand that it was uh, it's a labor of love. So I, I really yeah. hope everybody has a chance to enjoy the pages. That's really cool. What, what did it feel like when you first got that final copy of the book, that first thing in your hand? What, take us there. With is that, is that a- <laughs> it blew me away. It blew me away. It's like this. It's like a love-hate relationship. You love the idea of signing the contract for the book. And I'm Again, 25 years ago, Landon, you're going to publish books when you're an adult. I'd, I'd say, right. no way. There's no way this is happening. So right. it's always an amazing idea or a thought or a process starting out. And you're, you're on cloud nine. You sign a contract. You're ready to go. Hmm. And then you start getting the workload. You see what the contract says. And ultimately, at the beginning, you see, okay, well, I need 120,000 words, 275 photos, and I need it by this date. Right. And this is what the book will entail. Which is how far is that date out on this one? Was it like a year out? when you started one year less eight months it was crazy yeah so one year to get 270 photos and, and everything yeah well this one was 750 photos 275 separate images here's what blows me away when people think about a book and remember this when you read a book next this will this will take you to a different light when you're reading a book or even each chapter each page when you write a book the book is let's say sixty-five thousand words that's just the content in the book. That's just the text. Yeah. Each photograph has two sentences on average for captions. So that's an additional 20,000 words. Then when you do a fly time book, the 700 step tie photos mm. have two sentences of captions. That's an additional 50,000 words. 
So the book total is like 160,000, 170,000 words. Wow. It's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah it's unbelievable when you start diving in. It's a lot. But when I received this book, what blew me away is it's, in my opinion, the best looking publication I've ever had. Hmm. And I love yeah. the way that when you look at the page, it tells a story. And the story is, here's the big brown trout that you have potential to catch. Here's the fly in the fish's mouth. Here's the literature below or the text below that's going to tell you what the book is about. And then I love the multiple photos on the bottom where it's flies in hand, the mares mices, the many leech jig radiant, and Arlo Townsend's prospector nymph. It's that stone fly is an amazing fly in the book. But that really does set the tone. And I always enjoyed looking at blue. I think blue is one of my favorite colors. And the fact that the book is in blue too didn't didn't hurt the process at all. <laughs> there you go. There you yeah. go. Nice. <laughs> yeah. All right, Landon. Well, I guess we'll leave it there. We, we've always, you know, it's always fun to chat with you. And uh, maybe Thank we'll, you. We'll, we'll save the rest of this for the next one. Maybe you'll have another yeah. book down the line. Are, are you thinking now? Are you thinking maybe like you get done with this? Are you thinking already num- book number, your next one? Or, or what are you thinking? Yeah, I think, you know, for me, it's I, I definitely have an idea for another book. It's always a, a spending process in the mind. You're always creatively thinking. But I'm actually going out and I'm going to have come out at the end of this year a project with a good friend and editor. In fact, the editor that's responsible for 70%, maybe 60%, 60 to 70% of books published in the fly fishing industry in the last 10 years. His name is Jay Nichols. Yep. And he's the acquisition editor for Stackpool. He owns Headwaters Books. And we're going to film a fly time video. So that will be available oh, wow. at the end of this year. So a lot of what's in the book and beyond, it's going to be fairly interactive meaning that when you show a fly being tied we have collectively jay and i from the u.s and south america probably 500 hours of video footage so you'll see these flies being fished being tied it's yeah it's gonna be a pretty cool project so i'm excited for that one yeah right on right on well this will be uh, be out there towards (laughs) the end of the year and, and they can check back on that so yeah. Nice, Landon. Exactly. Well, thanks again for all your time and all the definitely the resources today. This has been a great one, and uh, we'll check back with you when we get this thing ready to roll. Sounds great. I appreciate everything, Dave. Have a great day. So there you go. Landon Mayer, episode 295 is complete. If you want to check out the show notes and all that we have covered there, including some of the, the flies, uh, we should have a list there and some of the, the names of people that Landon noted. Wetflyswing.com slash 295. 295. If you can, before we head out of here, if you're on Spotify, we could use a, another rating. Uh, we just got started with this and we're getting our first few ratings in there. If you've been enjoying this show and want to leave us a five-star rating, that would be amazing if we've been some help either today, giving you a tip, maybe a fly you hadn't thought about, or maybe a tool or resource. That would be super helpful. Help us find some more people out there and help keep this fly fishing movement Uh, going strong. That's the goal. Help one more person get started today. So um, so I'm going to leave it. I'm going to take it out here quick. We got another uh, big uh, show coming up next. Click that uh, subscribe and then check out the next episode and we'll see you when we see you, hopefully on the river and also hopefully online. See you then. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.